All right, well, bear with me this morning. I'll try to keep the sniffling and coughing and phlegm to a minimal, um, but who knows, uh, hopefully my voice will hold up. But I told, I told Steve if I, uh, if I pass out or I lose my voice, my notes are up here, he'll take over for me. He said, okay. No, I'm just, he didn't say. <laughs> uh, this morning, what we're going to do is, thank you, Jason, for reading Titus chapter 2. We're going to go through that section, and in that section, there's, there's instruction for all of us. Uh, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Uh, Paul, maybe in his wisdom, doesn't give an age to what he claims to be old or not, so I'll let you use your own judgment and discernment for that. Um, but this morning, what I want to do before we dive in and, and throughout the sermon, I want to highlight uh, and, and just thank all the mothers that are here this morning. As, as we mentioned earlier, uh, whether you have biological tr- children, adopted children, or, or spiritual children, thank you. Um, Stephanie and I have had the privilege of becoming parents this past year, and, uh, and here's my conclusion. Thank God for mothers. <laughs> Thank God for mothers. Um, I, I remember calling my mom, or, or, or at least the thought, maybe, I, I hope I called her, and now I'm putting myself on the spot. I just said, man, I, I never knew how much time and love and patience and sleepless nights go into motherhood. So all the mothers out there, thank you. And seeing the connection between a mother and a child through a first-hand experience, right? It's one thing to read about it, but to experience it, it's extraordinary. Um, you know, moms, you have the most important responsibility in the world. You're raising up the next generation of believers, of, of, of children. And the time that you spend with your children is precious. And I, and, and I, I asked Stephanie for a onesie that Naya had when she was a newborn, and as I'm holding this, I'm like, yeah, she's still that little. Like, yeah, she's still, you know, she's still there, but she doesn't fit this. <laughs> she's, she's nine months old already, and, and what I'm getting with that is time flies. So the time that we have with our daughter, the time that you've had with your children, it's precious. Um, so I want to encourage us this morning to just say thank you to all the mothers. And uh, if your mother is still here, give her a call and say thank you. Um, so this morning, we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John. We've been in there for a few weeks. And instead, you can turn to Titus chapter 2, as Jason read it. So I'll give you a minute to turn there. Titus chapter 2 is where we'll begin. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this letter from Paul. And we're going to get a glimpse of what discipleship looks like, what biblical discipleship will look like within the church. So a little bit of context of Titus, because we're jumping into a, the middle of the letter. Again, this was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. Titus was a Greek believer and was most likely led to saving faith by Paul. In Galatians chapter 2, we learn that Titus was with Paul and Barnabas as they went to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where the main question they were asking was, what do we do with these Gentile converts, these non-Jewish people who don't uphold the Mosaic law, who are not circumcised, what do we do with them? Is there, are they genuine faith believers? So we see that Paul brings uh, Titus and Barnabas with him. And Titus was most likely his model, born-again, believing, spirit-filled Gentile convert. Right? As, as Paul would bring and go to, this, go to the council, he would say, look at Titus. Look at his faith. So uh, what, what Paul would say is that there's no need for Titus to identify himself with any sort of religious Judaism with the Mosaic Law, with circumcision. And the message of Titus, uh, his duty was to build churches on the island of Crete that would effectively evangelize the island. 
This letter that Paul wrote, it served as an encouragement. It served as a strengthening tool for Titus. As a young pastor, he was, instru- he was instructed him to, to set up elders, to set up churches on Crete, and to minister under his leadership to the, to the people there. This letter also served as a backup of Titus's authority. It shows that the Apostle Paul has instructed Titus with a special uh, power or authority over the people in Crete, over the churches in Crete. And by saying, it's not my authority, but the Apostle Paul has given me the authority to be your pastor, to preach. And the purpose, again, of this letter was to build strong churches on this island, that they would be effective in evangelism. These were not Jewish people. And the island of Crete, it's very similar to Long Island. I was looking at the size of it and the, and the width and the length. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's southeast of Greece. It's north of Africa. It's about 160 miles long. Long Island's about 118, so it's very similar. And it's 7 to 15 miles wide, where Long Island at its widest is 25 miles wide. A lot of times when I think of islands, I'm like, oh, that's a small little thing. Like There, there must be maybe 50 people that live there. But I'm like, man, this is as big or bigger than Long Island. So these churches that were on the island of Crete, they were filled with new believers, new converts. They were immature in their faith, but they were also smaller in size. And they would, I would say they, they lacked strong leadership, which is why Paul's instructing Titus to set up strong elders and leaders in these churches. So the overall structure, we're going to be in chapter 2, but chapter 1 starts off with Paul instructing Titus in the qualification of church leaders their theology, their personal character, their personal conduct. In chapter 2, which we'll be in today, he talks about the character and the conduct of church members within the church. So the relationship from church member to church member. And then in chapter 3, the last chapter, he mentions the character and the conduct of both the church leaders and the members before the unbelievers. So now the relationship between the church and how they should be relating to culture and unbelievers around them. So this morning, I want to just go through a couple of these verses and look at a couple of main points. So number one, the first thing that we'll look at is we see an instruction to teach doctrine, to teach doctrine, and I would argue both inwardly and outwardly. So in verse one of chapter two, Paul writes this, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what Paul did is he just finished warning Titus about those people in the churches, those people in the culture who did not practice sound doctrine. The previous verse, verse 16 of chapter 1, we see Paul saying this, they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for the work. So as Paul, starting with chapter 2, he uses the word but as a transitional. Don't be like these people, but he encourages Titus to teach sound doctrine. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, when I hear sound doctrine or doctrine, my initial thought goes to theology. It goes to knowledge of the word. It goes to head knowledge. Right? We, we, we tend to think about doctrine and theology that the Christians that we should have and believe in. However, in the original language, as Paul's writing, he's not talking more so about right thinking, but right living. But right living. In the New Living Translation, I think they translate it a little bit better. It says this, As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So the idea here in verse 1 of chapter 2 is to speak out, is to live out 
that which is in accordance to sound doctrine of Christian living. Another way to say that is, is healthy and correct doctrine will produce healthy and correct living. The Bible never divorces doctrine from duty, from head knowledge, from heart knowledge, to actually practically living out that theology. That means that as we learn our doctrine, as we learn theology, it shouldn't just stay in our head. We should be living it out visibly, outwardly. That means when Jesus says things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, those aren't just nice words or nice prayers or mantras to remember, but rather those are words to actually live out. And there's something that's, uh, again, the, the, the great uh, example that Jesus has is Jesus lived this out. Jesus p- practiced what he preached. As he's dying on a wooden cross, getting nailed, getting crucified, getting spit on, getting mocked, beaten, he prays, Father, forgive them. Right? He doesn't curse his enemies. He, we see him praying for his enemies, loving his enemies. He's practicing what he's preached. And as Christians, we can have all the head knowledge, we can have all the right doctrine correct in our head, be sound with our beliefs, but if it doesn't transform our outward living, there's a disconnect. We've, we've disconnected doctrine and theology from the inward to outward. As we just sang, and I asked Stephanie to sing this song, From the Inside Out, it was the last song we sang together, the, the, the line goes like this, Consume me from the inside out. And what I view that as, and as I sing that and as I worship with that, is the love of Christ will consume our hearts and our minds, but then manifest outwardly in how we treat others, with our relationships with others, with how we talk to others, with how we love other people. And this is what James talks about in his letter. In James chapter 2, James sets up a contrast between two different types of faith. He talks about a faith that's saving and a faith that's not saving. A faith that has works and good deeds, and a faith that has no works or good deeds. And the conclusion of that, James does not compromise or contradict the gospel. He doesn't say we're saved by good works. Rather, he says we're saved for good works. We're saved to do good works. Why? Because as the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, sanctifies us, makes us more and more like Jesus, we'll manifest these fruits outwardly. We'll love others like Jesus has loved others. We'll treat others as Jesus commands us to treat others. So again, an active, saving, genuine faith produces good works. The good works are a byproduct or the result of salvation, saving faith in Christ. I heard this quote, and it's actually, I don't know who said it, but it's from a DC Talk um, song. They, They use it as an intro of one of their songs. The quote quote goes like this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And as I read that, unfortunately, I, I think there's some merit to that quote. I think it's true. The biggest harm for Christianity is Christians who are hypocrites, who are Christians who claim one thing but live out another way. They claim to be Jesus followers, Jesus lovers, disciples of Jesus, yet you look at their their life and you're like, you look nothing like Jesus. You're not obeying any of his words. And as I've just been kind of meditating and reflecting on this point, 
I think it's worth asking the question, and don't answer out loud or, 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 or give me any looks, but just think for, for a second, are we practicing sound doctrine by the way we live? Are you? Am, am I? Is our church? Are we practicing sound doctrine by the way we live? By the way we love one another inside the church? By the way we love one another outside the church? If we look like the rest of the world, then there's a problem because Jesus has called us out of the world. Actually, the, the, the word for, for church in the Greek, ekklesia, means called out ones. And in my mind, I think of, of what Christ has done is and when we come to saving faith in Christ and we repent from our sins and, and believe in him and he's our Lord and our Savior, he calls us out of the world. We no longer follow this world and the ruler of this world, which is Satan, that's what the Bible says, <clears throat> but rather we follow Jesus. We don't follow this world, we follow Jesus. So are we practicing sound doctrine? Because again, we could have everything correct in here, but the problem is, are we living that out? Right? There, there's, if there's a disconnect, that's a problem, that's a sin. And what Titus is saying, as he'll go through each person group in the church, he starts by saying, teach sound doctrine. Both, I would say, inwardly, head knowledge, the gospel of Christ, but also practically living it out. And what we're going to see is practical living in this next section. So the first thing we see is to teach and practice sound doctrine, inwardly and outwardly. <clears throat> and the next thing is Paul's discipleship plan within the church. Something that's been on my mind recently since I've, I've been praying about whether or not uh, to pursue the, the pastoral position here at New Village and something that I feel the Lord's been convicting me of is I've just been saying, how do we disciple? How, how does the church, how do we disciple one another? And, and I love scripture because the answer is right here. It, it, I don't have to make anything new or, or buy 20 different books and research discipleship. We see it here clearly laid out in Titus chapter 2. So this is Paul instructing Titus how to disciple within the church. So in verse 2, we're going to get to the first group of people. He's going to address the older men. So what I want to do is I want to go section by section, group by group, and I want to look at some of these words that he talks about, and briefly, not spend an hour on each word or an hour on each pe people group that he mentions, but just briefly speak a little bit into it of what Paul's instructing Titus to, to, to preach or to say to them. So verse 2, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So when I think of sober-minded, I think of being free of drunkenness or being free of intoxication. I think of one who avoids overindulgence, one who avoids extravagant living, one whose priorities are in the right order. They understand what has value, what's the greatest thing of value, and what's the least greatest of value. There's, there's some maturity here. The next thing we see is they're to be dignified. They're to be honorable. They're to never laugh at sin. Never join in and laugh at sin. Be immoral, vulgarity, sinful behaviors. I read this, they're never to laugh at the expense of others. And again, there, there's a maturity there. They're to be self-controlled. The next thing, they have discernment, discretion, and judgment when it comes from walking with God for many years. They control their physical passions. They reject worldly standards and attractions. They're to be self-controlled, have control over their flesh. 
They're to be sound in faith and love and perseverance. Being sound in faith, they're to hopefully have learned that God can be trusted in every way as they've lived their life with Him in relationship with Him for many years. Again, these are the older men. They're to be sound in, their, in love, their love towards God, their love towards His people, the church, one another, and those who don't know God. And they're to have perseverance or patience. And when I think of patience, my first mind usually goes to waiting at a red light, waiting for it to go green. And I'm like, come on, come on, I need patience, come on, come on. Okay, it's green. <clears throat> but more so a biblical definition of patience is to think of a marathon runner. Think of one who's running. It's one who practices endurance, who continues endurance under restraint, under the hardship. They don't give up. Like I mentioned before, I don't run marathons. I've said this before preaching because the Bible talks a lot about metaphors and, and marathons Paul uses. But when runners hit that wall, they can either give up or they continue. And if a good runner's trained in the right way and they're steadfast, they keep going. They endure. And that's the steadfastness, the patience that the Bible talks about. So again, as older men, as we see here, they're to be mature in both their faith and also their relationships. They're to serve as an example for the younger men within the church. The younger men should be looking up to them and following their example. In the Greek culture in Crete, where, where Titus is, they had this stigma or this, this understanding that with, with age comes maturity. That just because you're old, you're automatically wise and you're automatically looked up to and, and people should be, be, be automatically reverent to you and listen to everything you say. Now, there might be some truth to, to that, but here we see Paul encouraging Titus to teach the older men with sound doctrine. And I would say this, that our age does not equal spiritual maturity. Age does not equal spiritual maturity. So again, o older men who are here, and I'm not putting the... The, the age on here, like I mentioned, right? You should still be learners, growing in your faith, right? Not someone who, who's, who's above rebuking, not someone who's saying, ah, I don't need to listen to you, I know everything. He's saying avoid that attitude. And, and dare I say it, maybe older men don't know everything. I hope I don't get you know, a mob coming at me after church, but Spiritually speaking, we're to be lifetime learners and followers of Jesus. We should always be striving forward and growing in our faith. Don't be content with where we're at, spiritually speaking. So again, older men, be the role model, be the godly example for the younger men. And now we move to older women. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young woman. Women. I'll stop there. So the first thing Paul mentions is, is reverent behavior. They're to be godly examples of what it means to be a God-fearing, God-honoring Christian woman in all areas of their life, both their relationship, their appearance, their physical appearance, how they're dressing, how they're, how they're um, uh, looking outwardly towards others, but also how they show their faith outwardly within the church. I think of Anna in the temple in Luke chapter 2. Maybe, maybe you know this and you know her name and you've heard this before. But in Luke chapter 2, we see a woman, a, a woman prophetess named Anna, and it says that she's of old age. And it says that day and night she's serving in the temple with fasting and prayer. And we see uh, she's mentioned when, when Jesus 
as a baby is with uh, Joseph and Mary in the temple. So I thought, man, what a great a godly example to look at, just, just Anna at the temple. And I want to say this too. Age does not disqualify us. It does not disqualify you from serving in the church, both men and women, for everyone. Age does not disqualify you. I think something that's damaging in the church are phrases like this. Well, I'm too old. I have nothing to offer. Or I already did that 50 years ago. I think once we start getting into that habit, we think you're used good, you're, you're used up, that there's no need, God can't use you in any way. And I want to say that's a lie. Age does not disqualify you from serving. Older women in the church, they served in numerous ways in the early church, in the New Testament. They ministered to each other. They ministered to the younger women. They visited those who were sick and imprisoned. They provided hospitality to Christian travelers. Something interesting I read this week, they oftentimes, they walked the streets and the marketplaces and looked for abandoned babies. Because at that time, people who did not want their baby, they just left them on the street. They abandoned them. They ditched them. And it was Christian women who found these babies, brought them to churches, and the churches saved and adopted and raised up these babies. So I want to say this. There are countless ways to continue to serve as an older man and an older woman in this church, I don't want you to believe the lies from Satan that you have nothing to offer to the body of Christ. My plan is to start a children's ministry, is to start outreaches. And as an older man and woman, you have so much to offer. Both biblically, you're called to disciple those younger, but also younger kids look up to older people naturally. I had a youth group leader who was a little older and I was like, I don't know if the kids are going to you know, go to him. or you know, He's a little older. He, he's a different generation. The kids loved him. And shame on me for thinking that his age disqualified him from being relevant to these kids. The next thing we see, so again, don't let age or the lie from Satan that you have nothing to offer because of your old age. You do. The next thing that Paul says is to not be slanderers, or one translation says a malicious gossip. As an older woman, godly woman, you, re, you should be refusing to listen to, to spreading, propagating slander and demeaning words to other people, about other people. I read something that just as men are more inclined to physically abuse one another, women are more inclined to verbally abuse one another. And that can be maybe even more destructive. Right? So Paul here, when he says slanderers, he actually uses the word uh, di uh, diabolos, which is the word that's used for Satan, the false accuser in the New Testament 34 times. And I think what Paul is saying is slandering, gossiping is a big deal. Oftentimes, we, we, we lie to ourselves, like, it's, it's not a big deal, it's just a word. It's, you know, words don't hurt. According to the Bible, you're, you're spreading Satan's name, the accuser, the falser, the, 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 the slanderer. That's what Paul's using here for women to say, don't be slanderers. He continues and says to not be slaves of much wine. Don't become drunkards. Don't let wine and alcohol enslave you and imprison you. Don't let it control your life. For the older people on Crete, where, where Paul is writing to Titus, a lot of them, they turn to drink 
alcohol, wine as a stimulant, as a means of relieving their physical pains, their emotional pains, their frustrations, the loneliness that comes with old age. And, and I think the sad thing is that that's still true for today. It's still true for us today. They use it as a means of escaping reality, of numbing the pain. And Paul's saying, don't let wine, alcohol, drunkenness consume you. Don't let it be your master. Avoid it. Don't be slaves to it. And the last thing in this section is he says, teach what is good and train young women. So he's saying, teach what is holy and godly. The older women now have the responsibility for teaching the younger women in the church and encouraging them to be righteous and be godly wives and mothers. I'll say that again. The older women have the responsibility within the church to disciple, to teach, and to train up younger women. I was reading a commentary, and I wasn't going to say this, but I I feel like it's worth saying. Nowhere in here does, does Paul instruct Titus to go to the young women and to disciple them. I think if you look on that in a modern-day lens, that's dangerous, having a pastor go to a single younger woman, right, for accountability reasons. But also we see here he instructs the older women are to what? Are to do that, to come along and disciple. And, and how do they disciple them? By teaching them, but also by being the godly example for them. So I want to say this, all the older women here, your job of being a mother never stops. It, it, it doesn't. All older women are called to be spiritual mothers to the younger women, regardless if you have children or don't have children, whether your children have left the house or whether you don't have children of your own, it, it doesn't matter. You have the God-given responsibility and command to both formally and informally teach the younger women in the church. And what happens is when godly Christian women do not teach the younger generation the things of God, the church, the body of Christ will suffer. It, it does suffer. So now both older men and older women, you both again have the God-given command and responsibility to both be a godly example for the younger generations, right? how you live out your faith, but also to teach them as well, to come alongside them, to disciple them spiritually. And a lot of times we, we get stuck here because we're like, well, I don't know what that looks like. What does is, what is discipleship look like? It's very intimidating. It's a Christianese word. Uh, it's scary. What does that mean? I would think some practical ways of discipleship just simply means spending time together, praying for one another, attending church services or church functions together, being present. It's hard to disciple somebody if you're never there. It needs to be a relationship both helping in practical ways, whether that's giving advice, encouragement, hands-on help if needed, but also being an example in both how you, how you outwardly conduct yourself in spiritual living, living out what a holy life, a holy and pleasing life looks like before the Lord for the younger women. And now we get, I'm going to continue along here, Just I, I, I could be in here for hours and I don't want to be, unless you want me to, no, I'm just kidding. The next sec- uh, section of people, we see the younger women in verse, the end of verse 4. They're to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
So the first thing, younger women are to love their husbands and to love their children. And this is not, the word here is not a romantic or sexual love, but it's a committed love. It's a love that wives choose to have for their husbands. It's a love that husbands choose to have for their wives. It's a willing love that's not based on worthiness, but it's based on God's command to love one another. Whether biological, adopted, or spiritual, their children are to be loved sacrificially and selfishly. The same love that they have for their husband should be they should have for their children and vice versa. It's a love that has no conditions and has no limits. Right? It's one thing to read and to study this, but again, being a new parent, seeing this love lived out, it's amazing. The first week of having Naya, I was like, how, how do people have more than one children? How do people who have twins do this? This is hard. This is hard work. Setting an alarm every two hours to feed your newborn child. That's love. That, 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 is, that is love. That is, that is sacrificial and selfless love. No conditions, no limits. It's a love that gives everything up to go and to love. The next thing we see is that these young women should have self-control. It's a common sense. They should have good judgment, and that should improve with age. As you mature spiritually, you should be maturing in self-control, being able to recognize what is sin and what's a sin you might struggle with. Okay, if I struggle with this, maybe I should avoid falling into that temptation and into that sin by avoiding anything that might lead me there. Have self-control. They're to be pure. This speaks of being both morally and sexually pure, having faithfulness in marriage. It also speaks of modesty. Saying or doing anything or dressing in any way, physically how you look, appearance, that would cause a man to lust purposely. Purposely. Being modest in all areas, being pure in all areas of your life. The next thing he says is working at home. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, I struggled with this. I talked it over with Stephanie because I was like, I don't want to say anything from the pulpit and get attacked from the people or get, more importantly, be a heretic because it's in God's word and, and stand against what God says. But in Paul's letter, he says they should be working at home. And this is a command to Paul to the young mothers on this island that clashes heavily with today's culture. It clashes heavily with what culture says the role of women is in society. Now, biblically speaking, if you're upset by this, take it up with the Bible, not me. Biblically speaking, right here, the home is the place where women can train up and love their children and love their husbands the best. It's the place where she loves her husband and submits to him biblically. I'll say that for both men and women. Biblically. We'll touch on that maybe in a little bit. It's the place where she's able to offer the most encouragement and support to her husband. There is a local pastor that I talked to a few months ago, and he said the greatest advice he gave me and Stephanie was that when you go home, have time for it to be not ministry talk. Let your home be the sanctuary, be the means of escape where you and your wife can love each other, where you and your wife can leave the things of church and ministry over there. Right? And what he's meaning by that is don't take everything home and now have the house be the place where you have these, uh, these debates with the church. And we should be doing that. How come we're not doing that? How, have it be the place where you go and rest, 
where you're encouraged, where you love one another. And I was like, that's a, that's a pretty good nugget of advice. The home, the home is the place where the, where the young women can extend hospitality to Christian friends, to unbelieving neighbors, for visiting missionaries. The home is where she teaches and sets a godly example for her children. And I want to say there's, there's no shame or embarrassment in being just a stay-at-home mom. People my age and a little older than me, I, I heard this, they, they throw this around like it's, it's an embarrassment that, oh, I have nothing to contribute to society. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm like, that is the most important job you can have that's given by God to raise up your son or daughter in the ways of the Lord, to love your child, to love your husband biblically. It should be a joy, not a burden, not an embarrassment, not a shameful thing. And I think society has attacked that biblical truth today. And I truly believe this, that there's a God-given connection between a mother and her child. <clears throat> Early on, when, well, Naya still gives us a hard time with sleeping, but she'd be crying, and I'm trying to be a really loving husband. I was like, oh, Stephanie, you, you stay here. I'll get her to bed. I'll put her down. And I'm up there. I'm like, please go to sleep, Naya. 15, 20 minutes, she's just crying. I'm like, what the heck? Why is she crying? And I'm like, all right, Steph, I give up. It's your turn. Stephanie picks up Naya, and immediately Naya like melts in her arms and's like, I'm like, what? what? Naya, what the heck? What'd you do? <laughs> Sometimes like, well, I, I prepared her for that. No, but in all seriousness, I think there's a God-given connection between a mother and their children. Right? Stephanie can calm Naya down better than I ever can. I think that's God-given. And I want to say this too. If you're a younger woman here, again, I'm not saying ages, if you're a younger woman and you don't have children, your calling is still to be a spiritual mother. I know that might sound weird or strange to think about, but you should still be an example for younger children. Always look for opportunities to disciple younger children, whether it's at work or school or the church. And as I mentioned before, I, I want to get a children's ministry going. And I'd love to see both older and younger people volunteering to step up because those children need both of you. So younger women who are not mothers, your calling is still to be a spiritual mother, to be a spiritual uh, mother and disciple those who are younger than you. Paul continues and says they're to be kind, they're to be gentle, considerate, sympathetic. They're to be submissive to their husbands. Again, this gets attacked in culture nowadays. Headship and submission were ordained by God at creation in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 3, with the fall and its curse, it came a distortion of woman's proper submissiveness and man's proper authority over women. And if you want to know what biblical submission looks like, you can ask me and talk to me, or you could turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul sets that up beautifully there. As men, we're not dictators of the home. right? As men, we're, we're not tyrants over our wives. We're to love them with the same love that Jesus showed to us on the cross. A sacrificial, selfless love to our wives. Not one who lords authority over them. And, and I demand respect because I'm the man of the house. I'm the dictator. I'm the ruler. That's not what biblical submission and biblical love looks like in marriage. Ephesians chapter 5. I don't want to go into that because it could be a whole other sermon on that. 
but talk to me if you have questions or if I'm confusing you on this. And the question now comes up, why should the younger women do these things? In verse 5, Paul answers that. That the word of God may not be reviled. Paul's point here is that not only the evil things or the sins that we do, but also the good things, the commands that we fail to do, dishonor God and his word before the church and before the world. So living out this way, godly examples, discipleship within the church, it's to what? Bring glory to God, to be obedient to his commandments, to be obedient to his word. And now he moves to now the second to last group, the younger men. I'm not going to stay on this one too much. I wanted to focus more on the women today for Mother's Day. But young men, verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There's again, again, self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So young men, and I believe he's, he transitions now to speaking to Titus, right? Show yourself in all respects to be a model. I believe he's talking to Titus, and Titus is a young man. He's saying young men are to be self-controlled. They're to be model of good works, to show integrity, dignity, sound in speech, so that no one, if they bring a charge against them, nothing can stick against the young men who are Christian, who are living out these godly examples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The believer's behavior and public testimony should put accusers' charges to shame. It should be a clear contradiction, a clear red flags go up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You, this person, he did what? No, no, that's not, that's not in his nature. I know him. Right? Their reputation should put anything else to shame, being a godly example and a godly living out their, their, their godly faith. <clears throat> The next group of people, and, and I'll mention this one briefly, is, is verse 9, bond servants. He says, bond servants are be, to be submissive in their own, uh, to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. There was an understanding, it was almost like an unspoken, agreed-upon thing, that if you had a bondservant, a doulos, a, a willing slave, that it was expected that they would steal little things from you. It was like a common, like, okay, yeah, yeah, steal, you, know, you steal little things, okay, that's, you know, whatever. But Paul's saying, don't do that, not pilfering. It was also, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but both slave and master, when they came to church as Christians, they weren't slave and masters in the body. They were brothers or sisters in the Lord. They came to services. They came to churches as equals to worship the Lord. And I don't know how true this is, but maybe in some cases a slave might have a leadership role where in the church setting, the slave might have an authoritative position over their master. Maybe. I don't know. We're not sure. But it is a possibility. But what we see Paul saying here is bond servants outside the church are to be submissive to their masters. Right? They're equal in the church, but what? They're to submit to them outside the church, to love them, and masters are to love their bond servants. And here's a summary of, of, of this section, of these main points. Discipleship requires leading by example. Discipleship does not just mean teaching, 
does not just mean classroom settings, here's a book, read it, and we'll talk about it. It means leading by example. It means relationship building. It means showing up. It means being committed to. And gospel discipleship leads to, in, in verse 10, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. And when I think of that phrase, I just think of it, of it beautifying the gospel, making the gospel even more beautiful than it already is. I think of putting, putting jewels on a robe. I don't know why my mind goes here, but, but putting jewels on, on like a robe, beautifying it, making it look, look beautiful, adorning it. Discipleship, gospel discipleship leads to what? Glorifying the Lord. So not only should we be teaching the gospel, but we should also be living it out. Being an example to both the church, right, the body of Christ, but also to the world around us, we should show them what biblical love, servanthood, and grace looks like. And I want to end with this, these last couple of verses. We see the reminder of saving grace, of the saving grace of God. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And just four main ideas, and again, these are not many sermons right now, four main ideas as I, as I land the plane. We see in verse 11 that Jesus offers us salvation. Right, the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ came bringing salvation for all people. And this is not talking of universalism where because Jesus died on the cross that everybody in the whole world is saved and no one goes to hell. That, that's called universalism. That goes against what the Bible says. That's heresy. But rather, it's a universal opportunity for those to repent and to believe. As we set up the gospel, the issue is we can't save ourselves. So what happens is Jesus comes to be our Savior. Without him, we're saviorless, if that's a word. We're hopeless in our sin. But because of what he's done, he's provided the means, the opportunity for us if we believe, if we repent of our sin. The second thing in verse 12, we see that we have from salvation, we see power over sin. Paul says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And we're only able to do this, not by our own power, not by our own strength, not by our own goodness, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who's made us born again in Christ. Everything in these first ten verses that we just went through, transformed living, discipleship living, can only become a reality, is only possible to live out through the divine and gracious work of salvation described here in these three or four verses. Of Jesus. <clears throat> in verse 13, we see a future hope of salvation. We should be eagerly expecting and anticipating Jesus' return. Not just sitting and doing nothing, but an eager anticipation. And the second coming of Jesus, he will appear in glory and power. His first appearance was in humility and submission. He came as the lamb to be slaughtered, the lamb, the, the lamb to be sacrificed. But here he's coming as the lion, the judge, 
the one who will judge the living and the dead. And then the last verse, verse 14, it mentions redemption. It talks about redemption. It says we're redeemed. We're redeemed from every lawless deed. We're redeemed from every sinful, fleshly lust desire. We're redeemed for Jesus. We're redeemed. He purifies us. He, uh, he says it purifies for himself a people for his own possession. That we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That just as we were formerly possessed and enslaved to sin before Christ, we are now possessed and enslaved to Jesus Christ. And I love how Paul writes every single one of his letters. Paul, a servant. Paul, a slave. Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus. He's redeemed us. He's purified us. And this word redemption, I think I mentioned it before, but it's the understanding of releasing a slave who's held captive. It's releasing a prisoner with a ransom payment. It's a transaction. And at the cross, we see what? Jesus paying for our sins. The transaction, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserved in our place. And I just want to say this as an encouragement. We're redeemed eternally, once and for all, always. It's not temporary. It's not, oh, I I really messed up today. I hope I'm still redeemed. True saving faith in Christ, being born again, is something that we can never lose. We can never lose our salvation. And I just want to encourage us, as, as we go through this list, and, and a lot of this, it seems like it's impossible. It, it seems like it's a, it's, a, it's a heavy burden to carry. Okay, well, n- not only do I have to know biblical truths, but now I have to live it out, and, and now I have to do it. And let me just say something. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we do do it. We can do it. As Paul says right here, Apart from Christ, we can't do this. Right? But the Holy Spirit has made us born again, has given us a new heart and a new mind, as we talked about in last week's sermon. So I just want to encourage us and say this. Your age does not disqualify you from serving. Women, you're all called to be spiritual mothers, no matter how old or how young you are. And the third is we've all been redeemed for God's glory through Jesus, de- Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to come up on stage. <clears throat> Jesus, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for mothers. Lord, we, we thank you that of just the, the beauty and the commandments of what we read in your word this morning. That for all of us here who are Christians, all of us who have been transformed and born again because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, I pray, Lord, that you strengthen us and encourage us to live out our faith. That we never separate our doctrine from duty. Help us to remember, Lord, that that it's not just enough to know everything doctrinally, but to live it out and to exercise it and be godly examples for both the people in this church but also to the unbelievers all around us. I pray, Lord, that you give us boldness. Lord, that you give us courage to find someone to disciple, to find somebody to come alongside and to encourage. 
Lord, I, I pray just for, for, for little steps. It doesn't have to be anything formal or, or anything like a classroom setting, but I just pray that right now, Lord, you put somebody on someone's heart and mind right now and they can pray for this person and disciple them and show them love and show them what it means to be a godly example of what it means to be a Christ follower. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross, for loving us. And even at times when we don't show you love, you still love us. Even while we were enemies, you died on the cross for us. I pray that as we leave here, these words don't escape our minds, that they don't go in one ear and out the other, but I pray that we're transformed by your word, that the Holy Spirit will continue to convict us and encourage us as we continue to live out our faith. Lord, I pray that you continue to use New Village Church as a beacon of light in this community, that when people come and visit, they know that we're a church that loves you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our strength, but also that we love others. So Jesus, I just pray again and say thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for loving us. And in your holy name we pray, amen.